Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. I'm Bob Domena, and here with me, as always, is the very Chi-Chi Elliot Shibley. <laughs> Elliot, <laughs> Elliot, your turn. <laughs> Chi-Chi? Am I a restaurant Chi-Chi. now? <laughs> you are effectively elegant or trendy. Oh, why, thank you. I yeah. will take that as a, You're welcome. as a nice compliment. Yeah. All right. Well, since we appreciate your feedback so much, we are going to give a shout out to Traveling Thief, who left a pretty awesome review on iTunes. Bob and Elliot are a great duo and have found an awesome niche in covering all the nuances of how a person can travel. They do an excellent job of keeping the conversation interesting and really finding out unique aspects of various people's travels. Definitely download these episodes if you're looking to be inspired for your next or first adventure. I think that's sound advice. I yeah, I would have to agree. Thank you very much for that review. So so today's guest is a Scottish expat turned Peruvian resident. He has organized trekking tours throughout the world. He's been to the he's organized trekking tours to the Great Wall of China, Central America, Egypt, and of course now Peru. He has been involved with special needs programs within the Sacred Valley of Peru. And he's led over 80 trekking tours throughout the Andes. Um, his his new project, his most recent work, is Trek Hoppers Peru, which takes a very unique approach to the, you know, the trekking that takes place from within the Sacred Valley to Machu Picchu, in that he does it sustainably and he focuses on staying with the locals while you're traveling, which really gives you a very unique, very awesome experience. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Matt Wall. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Matt, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. So before we get into the details of what you do, I just want to get maybe a brief uh, idea of how someone who lived in Scotland ended up now owning a trekking company in Peru. Can you give us sort of the the cliff notes of how what what events led to that in your life? Because I, it's very interesting. Well, thank you for asking me, Bob, and good to meet you guys, Bob and Elliot. Um, well, actually, I left home at 18. I didn't have much plans or any game plan for later on in life. I wanted to go to university, I guess, possibly because all, all my friends were going. And they all qualified, and I didn't, and I basically didn't get the grades I needed to go to university. So I was kind of in a, a sinkhole, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do at that point, and I was a little bit down. But uh, someone said, try out this volunteer centre. And at the end of the day, I tried uh, this place, knocked on their door, and I said, I said what, you got, what you got going on? Don't forget, this is well before the time of internet and research. I'm going back to sort of 96, 97. So just before all that started happening. Anyway, so... I went into this volunteer centre and I picked up lots of flyers and found out some contacts and sent letters off as you do back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, some guys got back to me. Various various programmes, you know, volunteer programmes. One was in Africa. There was something in uh, Germany. I can't remember exactly all the ones I did, but I actually filled out them all. And I went went and did about four or five volunteer programmes. And that got me a... I guess a mindset to go and travel around the world and do interesting things and you know learn cultures and be involved be immersively involved into cultures and that got me to into tourism as well it's a sort of two you know two and play kind of thing where I was doing some volunteer work but I was also traveling I think they call it volunteerism now but um, we're going back to actually when, when it wasn't just take a photo of yourself doing stuff with people and it was more like get involved sort of stuff and I actually got into uh, doing this job called tour leading and go back to 2003 or 2004 actually and I ended up signing up for a company a company based in London who did these wonderful uh, group tours all over the world in weird and wonderful places China and India and Egypt and they got me going around Eastern Europe doing like traveling support, basically. So you take a group of 16 people, you're not the guide because they have local guides that do all that sort of stuff. 
and you basically take them, you take them to the hotels, you know, you find a nice restaurant, you recommend where to go and do stuff. Uh, you, you obviously coordinate between a guide, between the, the drivers, whoever it is, your logistics man, basically. And I did that. I got, got from Eastern Europe to Egypt to China, and my next port call was Peru. <laughs> I actually really had a big thing on South America for a long time, but there was no sort of channels I was looking at at that time that would get me right in there. And they wanted a bit of language as well, because, as you know, a lot of countries that are around the world you can get by in English. But a lot of Latin America, it's catching up now, but it's not like, you know, Spain or some parts of Europe where you can just get by in English. You can ask two or three people and you'll get your answer in English. So with South America, I ended up going over to Argentina. That's where my first port of call was, uh, Buenos Aires. And I did two months Spanish school and I stayed with a homestay, did a homestay program there. And then I flew up to Peru in two, March 2006, and then I started doing these tours in 2006. And I kept going at them, and for the next two or three years, I was running up and down Peru. Then I got to Bolivia, and then I did some Central America, but I was namely in Peru for those years. Um, I ended up settling down for a bit, and um, then I started going, right after I'd worked for two or three of these companies doing the same sort of things, like, well, I've learned a lot now, where can this go? And I actually ended up going on to doing my own tours. And this is where I've got to now. So I basically write a trip from scratch. You know, I don't take anyone's plans or carbon copy anything. It's on the web. I go, what do you guys want to do? What sort of things are you interested in? Do you want a bit of culture? Do you want a bit of, you know, uh, sightseeing, nature? It could be go visit a local school, get involved with an NGO, you know, a non-for-profit organization, could be purely historical, could be purely active, you know, mountain biking or quad biking or rafting or whatever. And I integrate all of that stuff and put it into a tour that people want, not just something that's scripted for them. And that's a lot of work. There's a lot of groundwork in there. And over the couple of years I've been doing this, I've gone, well, actually trying to find stuff now that I don't think anyone else is doing and it's it's actually quite hard to do in this day and age especially in Peru because it's become a very much a popular de destination for the tourists so in this case I was going well people like to do homestays and some people don't like to camp but people love to trek no matter what they do so I decided on this idea about doing trekking and homestays rather than trekking and camping because all the tour companies offer the routes but they don't generally offer them with, with staying with the local families. So I ended up wandering off as I do and, and going through various villages and around this area called the Sacred Valley, which is near to Cusco and near to Machu Picchu. And we encountered villages by chance. And I said, can you guys do some of this uh, catering for people as they come by? And, you know, we'll support you guys in any ways we can. And a lot of these trails aren't trekked. They aren't trekked by people. Uh, tourists as such you know they're not like an Inca there's an Inca trail but there's no tourists trekking it so it's finding these routes by chance and having the time to really scope out the whole area which is what I've done over the last couple of years it's taken me a while and I've I've done a few wrong turnings and got lost a few times but generally I've found a couple of really nice routes uh, that are what people would like and again without the tourists and the ones that the, the tour companies don't concentrate on because it's just not an area they're focused on and then the families, the communities that we go and visit in these places, they they warm to us because they're not used to seeing as much tourists. They're not there's not as much tourist exposure to the places we're going to visit. So that means that they actually have there's a genuine bond when we go and meet these these groups, these um, homestays or communities where we go to. And the idea is we learn a lot about their culture. So we're not just going in there, taking our photos, heading off to the next bus stop on tour. We go in and we live in their homes and we get, get out in the backyard and we help with them in the farm or we learn everything that you couldn't learn in just a day tour. You know, with just by staying over at night, the, the, the food we get put on our table comes, it's the natural organic stuff that's grown on the farms. We see firsthand how they do that, how it gets onto our table. We eat with the families, we ask questions, they tell us as long as we've got a little bit of the Spanish or we've got the the incentiveness to actually speak to them. And then after that, we move on to the next family on another as cool, as neat 
as interesting trekking trail as the first one was. Yeah, that's very, very cool. And I think that's incredibly unique. And I know sustainability is a major part of what you do and, and how you revolve the, your, your trips. But I just want to backtrack just a little bit. And if you could just go into the significance of Cusco and the Sacred Valley, because this has become the hub of tourism for Peru because of Machu Picchu. And mm-hmm. most people either choose to do the Inca Trail up to Machu Picchu. Um, you can you can take a train to Aguas Calientes, stay there and just walk up and t- or take a bus. So there's several ways to get to Machu Picchu from Cusco. Cusco. But that distance between Cusco and Machu Picchu is what is known as the Sacred Valley, correct? That's correct. So you have to pass through that on the way to get to Machu Picchu. So as distance goes, uh, I'm thinking in kilometers, I'll try and do miles, <laughs> around about 70 miles of a railroad that goes from just outside Cusco. It's a town called Peroy, and which is about a 10 or 15 minute drive outside of the main center of Cusco. And then you, you have to transfer on this road for about an hour and a half to get to a train station. Or you can get on that train station just outside Cusco. But most people go to the further away one, which is in the Sacred Valley, which is in a town called Ollantatambo. And from there, they get on a train. And that takes them to the, what they call Aguas Calientes. It's also called Machu Picchu Village. That's the village at the foot of Machu Picchu Mountain. Right. Yeah. And that's so we were very limited with our trip. We didn't really give you give ourselves too much time. So unfortunately, we're not going to be hiking the Inca Trail. Um, So I think what our plan was to end up going to Aguas Calientes or Machu Picchu Village and going up that way. Um, But I I really want to talk about, yeah, so, you know, are you, you, you're based out of Cusco, right? Right. So, yeah, I've uh, been based in Cusco on and off for many years. Uh, Actually, I'm looking right now at having my own place down in the Sacred Valley. But this year we're going to have our office. I've been doing most of my work online. But we're going to have our own place uh, ready and able by next year, early next year. So we'll have an office space where people can come by and come and see us and ask us about the treks. We'll have the topographical maps as well. I go over with people before they go out and trek with me or whoever it is they go out with. So, yeah, Cusco is the best place to be for that kind of thing because obviously it's a crossroad between getting to Machu Picchu, getting off an international flight from Lima. It's only one hour to get from Lima to Cusco on a flight. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a, a big melting pot for people to arrive to to get onto Machu Picchu or onto the treks that lead into Machu Picchu. And so leading to Machu Picchu from Cusco, there are now, as you said, you you can plan these treks according to what people are interested in. Do are most people just interested in seeing the ruins? And something that I didn't realize was that Machu Picchu, the ruins there, the the actual architecture doesn't seem to be too significant or too new, too unique to the area. There's actually ruins littered throughout the Sacred Valley. What makes Machu Picchu unique is is that it's tucked away on the side of the mountain and just the, the natural landscape that it's situated in, not necessarily the the architecture itself. And so what I've realized doing by doing my research is that there there are so many different towns along the way with incredible ruins. Do you do you take people to those? And, and make pit stops along the way in some of those villages? And that's which ones? The, yeah, that's the idea. I mean, you could say Sacred Valley is a bit of a warm-up to Machu Picchu because it was a sacred road. It was built for, let's say, they were the Quechua people. The Inca was actually the king. The, the Inca, there was only one Inca, right? And they built royal palaces between Cusco and Machu Picchu on this section, for example. So... Some of the royal palaces on the way to Machu Picchu, on the road to Machu Picchu, were built in these towns in the Sacred Valley because they were on the way. So the idea is you start from Cusco, then you move on to the Sacred Valley, and along the Sacred Valley, as you say, there's two or three really worthwhile visiting uh, temples and places of archaeological interest that have different elements to them that Machu Picchu doesn't have. So, for example... Uh, yes, there's terracing at Machu Picchu, but the farming and the agriculture you don't see anymore because it's just preserved and it doesn't doesn't it ceases to exist. So, for example, there's a town called Pisac, and that has some of the most amazing terraces in all of the Sacred Valley. 
and probably the biggest and finest examples of the Inca terracing that they still use today. They still cultivate on some of these terraces. Some of them are left as ruins, but some of them still are used today, which is proof in itself that it was a very punctual way of doing agriculture. And then you've got this town called Oriente Tambo, which again is where that train is that goes to Machu Picchu. Oriente Tambo has some very sacred sec uh, sections on it or sectors. There's some temples on there where the stonework is just super, super fine. Like you couldn't even get your fingernail in between the breeze blocks because they, they, they were so well sculpted, they were so flush that the, the buildings were really hard to knock down. Now, Machu Picchu wasn't reached by the Spanish, not by, not by the conquistadors, but Oyente Tambo was, but it's still very well intact because the Spanish couldn't knock half of it down because it was so well built. Uh, those walls, when you talk about them being so intricately sculpted and pieced together like a puzzle, they had no mortar, so those were all dry laid, correct? Exactly. They were like jigsaw puzzle pieces. Yeah. I, I know we went over it a little bit um, with the, the route when I gave you, I basically sent you um, our itinerary up to this point. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so other than the well-known cities, you being the trek-hopping uh, navigator, what are some of the your secrets? What are some of the off the beaten path cities that that most people miss when they're going through the Sacred Valley? Yeah, well, the thing is, with most of the well traveled Inca ruins that you see, Bob, that are are mainly is because it's accessible for transport. So a lot of people who are not up to hiking or don't want to hike, and you can imagine these sacred valleys and these mountain tops. There's lots of ups and downs. It's it's not quite uh, as flat as you could think. So I guess a lot of people don't get to these sites because there's just no road into them or out from them. And the only way you can do it is to slog it up three hours of uh of like switchbacks, you know, like zigzags on a super steep, uh, scrambly hill that not everybody's catered to do, and. There's a place actually in the Saka Valley which is really cool. It's called Huchai Cusco, which means little Cusco in Quechua. And Huchai Cusco is right on the top of a mountain, right on the top of a, a, a mountain cliff, actually. So the only way you can get to that is to hike up there. And it's a steep, solid hike for three hours with absolutely no way of getting up there other than to graft and and, and in the heat as well, because there's not much, you know, canopy club cover. It's quite like a dry, not like a dry canyon, but certainly exposed to the elements in the heat of the day. Um, because the Sacred Valley is a little bit of a heat trap. You get this sun during the middle of the day. Really, it feels like you're going up in a sauna. So for a lot of that, for that reason, a lot of people are put off by going to some of these really spectacular, special places that the Incas decided to build for the sake of it in these areas where they were really super hard to, you know, get access from, but there were great vantage points, you know, for controls between different towns, for checking out who was coming and who was going. That's why most of these places were built up, up so high. What's at the top of Little Cusco? What's so Ujai Cusco, or Little Cusco, um, actually is a Inca road that leads to another place called Chinchero. And Chinchero was one of those, royal Inca palaces or where the, the high nobles would, would stay on their way to Machu Picchu. So it, it was another sort of, if you imagine a web of different pathways connecting between Cusco and Machu Picchu, it was one section of a leg or a part of the web that connected to Chinchero, which connected to Cusco, which connected to Machu Picchu. There's a whole mapping system of it, um, which is really, really interesting. And yeah, we, we could be talking about Inca roads because a lot of people just think there's one Inca trail. There's thousands of Inca trails. The, the Incas built lots of roads. So that's what people don't realize is like, they think we'd have missed out if they don't do the Inca trail because it's, the old, it's like the one everyone knows, but there's other Inca trails that lead to other sections of ruins. Uh, go through canyons, waterfalls, there's petroglyphs, you name it. You can find it on, the, on these kind of routes. So would you argue that uh, the Incan road system uh, rivaled the Roman road system? <laughs> I, think it, I think it's, I, don't, I can't remember the facts, and I have been reading a big book on it, but there, there's over 20,000 kilometers of Inca road. It's actually called the Capac Nyan. 
And don't ask me to spell that. <laughs> <laughs> Begins with Q. Anyway, so it leads. It's a, a whole system, a whole network of roads that go from all the way in, uh, I believe, Colombia or Ecuador, just to the bottom part of these countries. Goes all the way through Peru, Peru down into Bolivia. And there's, it, there's so many roads. They, they're still trying. They're still finding new roads. You know, basically from north to south of Peru, the whole there's a there's a whole section of this Inca road or Capacnan, and some of them stem off onto the coast, and some of them stem off into the jungle left and right. Okay, so you mentioned uh, Quechua. Is that uh, indigenous language? Yes, it's Peru's second language. Okay. They have a lot of in- indigenous languages, but. Uh, Spanish obviously is number one, and the Quechua is spoken mostly in the Andean villages. So if you went to Lima, you would find find it hard to find people that actually spoke any Quechua at all. And a lot of the people who live there have never learned at school or anything. But if you move into places like Cusco, which is further into the Andes, and then the, the further out, the more remote you get to some of the villages, it's more Quechua speaking, yeah. Okay. Can you provide a little bit of the history of the Incan Empire, like, why is how how big was it first of all, and why is it located? Why is Machu Picchu where it is, and why did they spread into the Andes? Yeah, well, I'd be speaking on behalf of a lot of different theories, to be honest, because the Incas, like the Mayans, didn't write anything down, and a lot of the the information is being chronicled or compiled, let's say, from the books has been, information has been misconstrued. Um, a lot of the Spanish conquest, there was stuff lost in translation, or the Incas declined to talk about it to the Spanish, or they made their own stories up to make themselves look good, you know. So it's a, it's a lot of folklore in, involved with it. Um, the Inca Pachacutic, who was, I think, the ninth Inca, um, he was the main guy who's founded a lot of these, these towns and these cities. He certainly founded Cusco, and he um, he was very well, you know. He was he bloomed this whole. You imagine this, there's lots of small Inca tribes around. He sort of brought everything together, and you know the architecture became better, the farming became better, the weaving, the astronomy. For example, they were big into astronomy. They have their own star signs. There's, a, there's an Inca planetarium in Cusco. If you have time, you should go and visit. It's really cool. So he was the one that got all, a lot of these skill sets together and really boomed uh, the whole Inca empire. And obviously there was, a, I think there was another four or five Inca emperors or Inca kings. And then the Spanish came, came in and in 1533, I think the Spanish came in and then it was all over and everything just was left as it is sort of thing. People were enslaved and doing mining and all this sort of thing as the Spanish came in and took over. And unfortunately, a lot of the Spanish stuff is outdated, is, you know, a lot of the Inca architectures were knocked down and a lot of the Spanish things were put on top. You know, for example, an Inca temple wasn't re-emplaced by a Spanish church. And there's perfect examples of that when you go to Cusco. There's this temple called uh, Coricancha or Temple of the Sun. And you see the foundations of the Inca temple and on top of it is a Spanish you know, a church. But on the other hand, what's really cool about the architecture is a lot of the Inca stuff, which is older than the Spanish colonial stuff, has lasted longer. We're talking about those bricks, you know, either flush and they're, they're not cemented in any way. And they're also angled at a certain degree so that when there is earthquakes, it withstands the earthquake. Now, the Spanish came in and they didn't think about any of that. And they the re, the, the rebuilt the... The, the big cathedral on the main square about three or four times because Cusco's not really an area for much prone to earthquakes but they happen maybe once every 50 years I think the last one was 1950 for example the last big one in Cusco and yeah all the Spanish stuff's fallen down the the Inca stuff that's older has remained it's still there so it goes without saying really yeah it's got good architecture uh, you mentioned the salt mines and were they were they built for the Incas, or is that the Spanish that developed those? The Incas built them, and I believe it goes back quite quite a few centuries. Uh, I don't again. I, I'm not a historian, and I don't I don't guide to the sites. Okay. 
we have specific guides that we work with who do all the sort of factual information. Um, but yeah, it certainly it goes goes back goes back a few centuries and before the Spanish conquest came in. Okay, uh, that's kind of cool. Um, so for your trips, I, w- I do want to get into um, how one would actually prepare for the trip since you're not actually camping. Do you have to bring a big pack? Would you just focus on bringing a smaller pack, maybe a sleeping bag? And when you get to the next village, um, do you bring equipment or do you use all the tools and equipment that the village has to assist and volunteer with the farming and maintaining and upkeeping of the village? That's a, that's a good question, Elliot. I mean, for example, when you're doing camping, you need to think about what sort of kit you need to take. Whether you go with a company or not, if, if you need, you know, you need your sleeping bags, you need your uh, sleeping mats, camping stoves, anything like that is a lot of kit to carry and a lot of weight. With these treks, we don't actually have to carry anything but a day pack. So I would be expecting something like a 30 litre, you know, it's a mid-sized, maybe a 35, 30, 25 sized, uh, litre sized uh, rucksack, rucksack. And with that, you can pack in probably two, three changes of clothes. Like you don't need three jump, you know, you don't need three sweatshirts and you don't need three pants, but you do need three changes of underwear unless you want to go <laughs> go hardcore. <laughs> but yeah, I would be taking limited on that, but um, you would need obviously water. I usually carry my own first aid kit, quite a substantial first aid kit. People have their own medication. It's up to them what they take in their medical kits. And yeah, I mean, a flashlight is very important. And the rest of the stuff we get along the way. So what I mean by that is we we buy in the local markets. You know, we can get all the stuff. We can stock up on all the stuff we need for hiking during the day. So your picnic style, you know, lunchbox, whatever you want to call it. That's fine. We get all of that stuff in the marketplace. And then, so we're buying locally. It's all, it's not supermarket, you know. I also take with me the, the textile made bags, so we don't carry any plastics. So you you have a fabric bag as such that we reuse. So we go into the market, we buy six bananas or five apples. We're not going to get a plastic bag to put them in. We're going to put them in our other bag, which can go in our rucksack. Simple things like that. The rest of the time, we'll have dinner and breakfast with the homestays. So the families will cook us produce from their farms, what they eat themselves. So it's healthy, wholesome, hearty foods. We get like soups with, you know, different types of quinoa and Andean grains and cereals. And then we'll get maybe fish and rice. Or if if you don't eat fish, that's fine. It'll be something else. But it's all locally sourced, which is very important. Wow. Yeah. Travel. I... Travel itself right now is very interesting because it is it offers great cultural benefits and great cultural learning, and it can provide different sides to a story that you might not have heard. But on the sustainability side of it, um, there's a lot of argument right now that travel is detrimental to the environment, not necessarily traveling if you're hiking or walking around or biking, but Going to the actual destination via plane or boat has massive environmental stress just from your carbon footprint to the use of jet fuel. And it seems like you, we haven't found a way to, to reduce that environmental impact, but your trips being as sustainable as they are, hiking through the sacred valley, picking up trash along the way, not using plastic and not only environmental sustainability, but cultural sustainability, giving back to the communities you're staying with. Do you, do you believe that the work you're doing can help offset some of these travel costs or environmental costs of travel? It certainly minimalizes it, Elliot. I think you do the best you can with the resources you have at the time. I think the government need to step in a lot and do a lot. And I think when it comes to things like plastics, it's a, it's a kind of mindset where people, local people don't think about it. So it's making local people aware of what we're doing, what we're going on. Not everyone has access to television and Facebook. Not that that's the most important thing, but, you know, you find a lot of things out doing your research on Facebook or on, sorry, on Google or whatever domains you use. 
So people who live in the Andean villages, they buy their stuff, they get given a plastic bag when they collect their fruit and vegetables from the market. Then what do they do with it? You, they live in a village right up in the mountain. There's no garbage disposal. There's no trucks that can come up and collect it. The kids see their parents drop their, their garbage outside their own backyard. The kids will do the same. So we're, you have to start at gra- grassroots level to educate people. And, you know, the government can only step in there. <laughs> I mean, we can be our foreign, do our foreign duty and go in and go, you know, as we're hiking through the trail, this isn't good. We've got to do something about this, guys. But it's, start, it's a whole, you know, there's a whole network of things that need to be in place to get the plastic and, and anything, the pollutants or whatever it is, um, to change the whole whole way of life. I'll give you an example here. I, I just noticed recently that one of the supermarket chains has just started. I'm sorry if I'm going off track here. No, no, just no. started doing a, like a counter where they offer you uh, to bring a, your own bag. That's how far we're behind. Oh, wow. You know, in Peru, we're very far behind any of this train of thought that comes to recycling, plastics, what's what's good for the environment, what's not good for the environment. On the other hand, and a good note is all the, the farms that we work with, all the communities we go through, they don't use pesticides. They don't use farming machinery. All their stuff is organically produced. And it's all, you know, there's no there's no chemicals in there. So that's one good thing to say about those communities, definitely. Yeah, I think that that translates well with the uh, the food in Peru being what it is and and so sought after, especially in Lima. Um, so, do you mind if we sort of get into the 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 gem of the Sacred Valley, uh, that being Machu Picchu, and and what most people end up going there for? I guess that's still the case, right? It's sort of. It's, it's a very highly sought-after uh, tourist attraction. Um, it's the number one tourist attraction in all of South America. Yeah, really? yeah, I believe that. I, I wonder where it, where it falls worldwide, because I would assume that it's pretty high up there, maybe maybe behind the Roman Colosseum or something like that. But there, was a voting poll, there was a voting poll done in 2007, Bob. I don't know if you heard of it. It was an online voting poll, and it was for the seven new wonders of the world. And Peru was voted number one. I can't remember this. I think 40 nominees. Roman Colosseum was one of the seven. But yeah, um, Machu Picchu got number one on the the seven. Wow. And by that, it got also put in the map. I think a few celebrities came out and then everything just went crazy. And now Peru receives three million tourists a year. It's more than any of the other Latin American countries. Maybe Mexico, I don't know. But South America, for sure... It's the most uh, uh, population of tourists visiting per year. Three million. And they have a population of just over 30. So there's a huge economy there. Yeah, that's incredible. So do you want to get into, I guess, before before the actual logistics of trekking to Machu Picchu, do you want to just get into what it is and, and its historical significance and why it is such a big attraction? Right. So Machu Picchu was, was always there. Uh, there's a guy called Herm Bingham, who you've probably heard of by reading a little research or just going on to Wiki, Wikipedia, you can find it. Anyway, this guy, Herm Bingham, he was working... Uh, I think he was with the Yale. He was looking for the lost city, which was a different place. It wasn't... He came across this place. It was, it was a local person that took him there. Anyway, in 1911, he discovered, as a way you could say it, uh, put Machu Picchu on the map, let's say. And it got put in a it got publication in the National Geographic magazine. So from there, it, it was marked as you know the most important Inca site, and Cusco being the Inca capital or the capital of the Inca Empire. So it was the let's say the the special place for the main Inca, the the king of the Inca people or the Quechua people who went there and stayed there. It was only nobility that were allowed to live in certain quarters. A bit like, I suppose, something equivalent to the, the, the Forbidden Palace in China, in Beijing. So mm-hmm. it was a real, like, special place that only the Inca was, was really allowed to go there. Him and his entourage, let's say. And, yeah, I mean, there was obviously, it's a huge site. I mean, there's various parts of it you, you would need more than two hours. You're only really allowed two hours as a sort of 
little trip involved goes. But there's so many other little parts that you need to walk to to get to that would take a couple of hours to get there and get back. So a lot of people just go to the main citadel, which is obviously the in the most important Inca buildings, which is where the, the, in the Inca would have lived. And they do their tour around the main citadel. And then further away from the main sanctuary, you've got like the gardener's house and the terraces. The terraces are everywhere around the outside. You've got this moon temple that is up on the Huayna Picchu mountain. And you've got the sun gate, the Intipunku, which is the first place you get into, as you see Machu Picchu, it's coming off the Inca Trail, off the classic Inca Trail that goes into Machu Picchu. Right. Yeah. And so so the way we're going to be, we're just going to be walking up from Aguas Calientes mm -hmm. um, just due to time restrictions. And and so what I've learned is, and you can follow up on this, it, basically you have you only have a few options. So when you're purchasing tickets for Machu Picchu, you can buy the ticket to get into Machu Picchu and then pick either Montana Picchu Mount, Mountain or yep. Wayana. And they really don't yes. want you doing both, I guess, because they want to shuffle you out as quickly as possible. Now, <laughs> in addition to, to picking between, uh, first I want to I ask, which, which one do you prefer? But then also, if you're in there, in Machu Picchu, are you then able to travel up to the Sun Gate if you didn't come from the Inca Trail? And can you go to the Inca Bridge? Right, so let's, it's quite detailed. Let's see how we do with regards <laughs> to each section. Okay, so yeah. You have your main section of Machu Picchu. There's an entry gate. Now, you guys are walking up from Aguas Calientes or AKA Machu Picchu Village. You'll have to take about an hour and a half to walk up. The only other option is to take a bus, and the bus is 25 minutes, but it's quite expensive. So if you're walking up, let's say it takes you an hour and a half it's going to lead you to the main entrance. That's not the end. There's two entrances. There's the one that they, they come in from on the Inca Trail, which is that sun gate. And then you've got your main entrance, which is where everybody else comes in. So if you buy your ticket for Machu Picchu Sanctuary, you, like you say, you can only do one combo or the other combo. So you have a Huayna Picchu combo ticket or you have the Machu Picchu Montaña combo ticket. The Machu Picchu Huayna Mountain that we've already spoke about, that's about an hour and 15 minute round trip. You can only do that in the morning because they don't let you in the afternoon. <laughs> Simple <laughs> as that. And there's two time slots. So they, have, they let 400 people in a day for this and you can take 200 in one time slot and 200 in the other. So they let you in between, let's say, 7 and 8 and 10 and 11 and that's it. That's the only time people can go up to Huayna Picchu. That means you have to time it, what time you're going to have your guided tour. So you're supposed to have a guided tour in about an hour and a half. So if you say go up to Huayna Picchu at 10, 11, you're going to have to have the guided tour before it. The reason I say you have to do it before it is because you have a one-way system in the Citadel. They don't let you go back now. You have to go, once you enter the main Citadel, you have to go around in a one-way system. And that leads you to the exit as well. So you can't come in, back in again and do the circuit again. Really complicated. Machu Picchu Mountain is on the other side, so you can't, it's higher up above the main citadel, so you can go off and do that, no problem. It's about a three hour round trip. The difference between Huayna Picchu Mountain and Machu Picchu Montaña is the viewing perspective. So let's say Huayna Picchu, you get that classic view, you know, the one you, you get to view the whole complex quite nearby, and this moon temple, it's up there as well. But Let's say you can take on a three-hour round trip. It's much, it's really worth it. Less people do it. Uh, the tickets don't tend to sell out as well, which means you have got an option if you still want to do something outside of the Citadel and the Huayna Picchu option's gone. But it gives you 360-degree panoramic views, which are just absolutely amazing. So you don't get that with Huayna Picchu because you're still too close to the main, you know, the main site. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. The Inca Bridge, you don't have to, there's no combo ticket for that yet. You can go off and see that. And the Sun Gate, you can go and hike up from the main entrance in about 40 minutes. So so, so you enter Machu Picchu and then you're stuck basically on a, on a path that they designed to just, you know, sort of like a conveyor system to just push people there. one way through the, the Citadel. I guess at some point when you get towards Wayana, you, you right. can hike there come back down, get back on your little conveyor system, and exactly. then exit. Exactly. So, so 
you don't have, uh, you do have a choice to not enter that system when you first arrive to the site. So when you go in the main entrance, you can hang around, take photos, look at the llamas on the terraces, go up to the sun gate, go along to uh, the, the Inca Bridge and do all that. But once you enter the citadel, this is all above the citadel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Once you enter the citadel and you're in that one-way system, you can't, you, they'll not let you go back. There's guards or park security everywhere and they whistle at you. You know, you can't even touch the terrace. If you put your hand on the terrace or lean against the terraces, they'll tell you to get, get off it. So once you're in that one-way system, that leads you down to Wiener Peachy. You can go up and down from there, but you're still in that circuit. You can't go back and do something else. The only way, the only way you could do um, Wiener Peachy and Machu Picchu Mountain is that you buy two tickets, two combination tickets. So you buy a Machu Picchu ticket all over again. It's really quite... Um, quite scandalous to be honest the way they the way they operate it but you you would have to enter Huayna Picchu the seven or eight time slot in the morning do that really quickly then buy another ticket re-enter then go to Machu Picchu Mountain and then do your guided tour after Machu Picchu Mountain wow but it is possible it's just you'd have to be fast on your feet yeah all right I don't know if it would be worth it it seems like it would be just too too hectic to do yeah, all of that. Yeah, back in two days. Do it as one day. Do one day with one mm. of them and do the next day with that. If you really, some people just prefer to do one or the other and they're not super, you know, psyched to, to do every single um, little bit of Machu Picchu because it's a, it's a huge complex. But, you know, some people will do. So they will go back a second day and take the ticket the second day once they've had some rest down in town. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad I asked you about the logistics there because I didn't know. I was curious to know, you know, once you arrive, do you automatically go into the Citadel area or or can you go into the Sun Gate? Because I did know once you entered, you couldn't turn back around. Um, so, so what you prefer is to just once you enter, do this, go to the Sun Gate, hang out with the llamas. And I know I already know exactly where you're talking about just based on my research. Then maybe see the Inca Br- Bridge, which seems really cool. I, I, is the bridge even there anymore, or did they remove it? Uh, you can only go so far, so close to it, because it's it's kind of like a bridge that's collapsed, so there's all this rock ju- jutting out from the cliff, and you can only go to take a photo of it. You can't walk across this Inca Bridge or anything, if that's what you mean. Okay. You get, get there close enough to take a photo, then you have to come back the way you came. It's actually not far off the same trail you would be taking going up to Machu Picchu Mountain. That okay. So, so, so you would prefer to have someone see the Sun Gate, see the Inca Bridge, and then go into Machu Picchu, the actual citadel area, do Wayana, come back out, and then that's pretty much your day at that point. That is pretty yeah. much your day. You're, you're going to have time to do. You're supposed to, they did imply a rule that you had to have a guide with you, but I don't. I think it's quite relaxed in that one. So I think you can just go and do everything yourself. It's handy to have a guide, but obviously doing a one and a half hour guided tour on top of all of that, you've not got any time. You haven't got time to do it all because there's, on top of that, as you probably already know, there's two time slots for the Machu Picchu entrance. There's a 6 till 12 and there's a 12 to 5.30. So you take one ticket or the other ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's very jam-packed. They really, they're trying to regulate it. And, and, and I understand from the perspective of you know, there's a lot of people that are going to this site every day, and they well, they, they need to manage like a it. Limit of 3,500, but a lot of people believe I believe that there's more than that, especially yeah. in high season, which is June, July, August. They say there's more than the, the allocated number. Uh, I don't quite know how that works. Like they don't. I've never heard nobody getting a Machu Picchu ticket. There's always issues with the Inca Trail permits, but the Machu Picchu tickets, people always seem to get, no matter how many tickets they say there's available, people will get a ticket. Hmm. Interesting. That is interesting. I wonder how that's ma- how that math is working. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Who knows? So with all of this talk of mountain and trekking, is there an issue with altitude sickness hiking up to Machu Picchu from Aguas Calientes or hiking up Huayana Picchu? Yeah, I suppose not as much as there would be in Cusco because I don't know if you know the elevations at each place, but Cusco's elevation is 11,000 feet or 3,400 meters, which is higher than the Sacred Valley. Sacred Valley is 2,900 meters, which is approximately 8,000 feet, I think. And just work it out. Yeah, I think it's about 
So about 8,000 feet there or thereabouts. Uh, Machu Picchu village is lower than the Sacred Valley. It's actually down at 2,000 meters or around about 6,300 feet. Okay. So you're already lower than Cusco, but a lot of people still have issues with altitude. I think for most people, the best thing to do is not go straight to Machu Picchu and hike or hike anywhere for that matter. I think the best thing for people to do is take at least one night, if not two, in Cusco, in the Sacred Valley, or a stepping stone, go to the Sacred Valley, stay over there, take the train the next again day, break it up into stages that they have the time to do it. Get to Aguas Calientes, take a rest there, then the third day they go up to Machu Picchu and they should be fine by then. Not 95% of people will probably be fine by then. That's, that's what I usually gauge. Okay. Do you have any remedies for dealing with altitude sickness? Any anything that you prefer? Anything in your uh, handy first aid kit? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the fancy hotels is the supply oxygen tanks. I mean, if you're going out on any of these treks, most of the companies, that, the responsible companies, would take a an oxygen tank with them in their pack, or their crew would carry one. And so. Aside from gaining extra oxygen by sitting in your room with a, a, a tank of air over your mouth, <laughs> drink plenty of water, always. Rehydrate yourself. Don't have any alcohol, at least for the first day. I know it's tempting, but the first two days. <laughs> no Pisco Sours. No Pisco Sours. Tenfold. And then this, the other thing is eating soups and things, things that are really, like, really good. Um, good for rehydration soups with andean cereals um bananas are supposedly good uh potassium source so they help the the coca tea which i'm sure you've heard about the mate de coca mm -hmm. uh, comes from the coca plant that grows everywhere in the sort of high jungle of the amazon and uh yeah there's lots of little tricks to be honest the main thing is to rest and not do anything too exertive so you guys are going to have a, a bit of time before you actually climb up to Machu Picchu. Haven't you got like a day or two? So, yeah. So we land in Lima and then the next day we fly from Lima to Cusco. And we have basically an entire day just in Cusco all day long. We're going to go sightseeing. Um, and then we have, you know, the evening there and we're going to go. We were planning on going out that night. That's sort of, <laughs> I don't know, that there might be alcohol involved. Um, oh, well. <laughs> do, it, do it your own well. I don't mind. It's like, you can decide at the time. I think, you know, the thing with altitude, though, is not everybody's going to be the same. You may get there and go, what was Matt talking about? Apart from maybe a shortness of breath, a little bit of a sore head, you might be all right. Some people get bedridden. They can't do anything for the whole day. But you have to think about it. If you're going to do a trek, Definitely, definitely, definitely need two days, two full days altitude before you do any any kind of exertive trekking. With yeah. your place of Machu Picchu, where you're just doing a tour and you're doing a little bit of hiking up to the ruins at a lower altitude than Cusco itself, that I would say, yeah, you're good to go with, with what you're doing. You know, your full day in Cusco, overnight in Cusco, get up the next again day, you've got to get out to Machu Picchu. So I would say you're, I would be fine with that. Yeah, we have that first day, and then the next day we actually have our road trip where, you know, I call it a road trip, but it's basically our, our traveling from Cusco. We're going to go to uh, Pisac, the market, and see the ruins there, then go to Chichenero, and then back down, then to uh, Aliantambo. Aliantambo, yeah. Aliantambo to get the Peru Rail to Aguas Calientes. Stay there for a night, wake up that next morning, and then do Machu Picchu. So I think we're going to have some time to adjust, uh, you know. And obviously we won't be drinking the night before we're going to Machu Picchu. We're waking up at, you know, 3.30 in the morning just to get up those steps as quickly as possible and be as close to the front of that line when that gate opens that morning. Yeah. So um, I think we'll be okay, hopefully. We'll see. I've, I did have to deal with Famous uh, last altitude. words. Yeah, I've had to deal with altitude sickness when I was hiking in Colorado, and it was not fun. I didn't – it was just – it was an incredibly harsh headache. I was just dehydrated, and I just – incredibly dizzy. I had to close my eyes, and it, it was just a little rough. But yeah. I, I really hope that none of us get it because I think it could be pretty bad, and it could you could be bedridden and just unable to function and 
and hike and see Machu Picchu. So it's something that I've been worrying about. Yeah, I think people, it's good to be advised or be warned. I don't think people should worry themselves out of sleep. I think people have to enjoy themselves and really take it as it comes. You know, it's a bit like the old, you know, not just altitude, but well, I get sick if I eat this or eat that and they don't eat anything and they get sick anyway. I think you just have to ride it out and go go with the flow and make sure that you're properly doing everything you can. And like I say, if you've got one or two days rest days just before, just in case, then that's good. But most people are generally able to do Machu Picchu without having a, a serious issue with the altitude sickness. It tends to be the higher altitude trekking that's the problem, especially if people don't take the night enough time in Cusco or wherever to acclimate properly. Yeah, yeah, it's something we'll be considering for, for sure. I do want to ask something because we've been we've just been mostly looking at all Airbnbs and when you are preparing your trekking trips through the Sacred Valley along the Incan Trail, um, how do you reach out and establish connections with people to say, hey, uh, we're doing this trek, we're doing this two to seven day trip through mm-hmm. here, we'd like to stay here with you and potentially help out. Is that possible for someone that maybe knows a little bit of Spanish or doesn't have any connections and is it is pretty much a tourist it's actually better for someone who speaks quechua and quechua. I, I don't know enough words i know a few words of quechua but not enough i want to get get practicing a little bit but yeah spanish i usually communicate in spanish to get to the some of the villages are a little bit more remote than others that we do in our treks so for example one village i can phone call they have phone signal and i'll get i'll get hold of the, the guy the guy runs his farm and just say, we've got five people coming up tomorrow. Can you take us? Uh, I don't really like to give them just one day's notice, though. If people are going to sign up for any treks, I tend to want at least at least two or three days. And if if the case is I can't get hold of someone, I'll physically walk out to the community and, and go and meet them and go and find someone who says who can leave them a note if they're out in their farm and they're not at the farmhouse or whatever it is. So I need two or three days for a start. And, yes, most of the communication I do... Uh, I can communicate with the families, but there's, they don't have websites set up. There's no bookings.com or whatever it is there. You can actually go and find these people. It's people I've generally gone and got contacts from through going to the areas of myself on my own two feet. Okay. Very cool, which makes your your trek hopping experience even more unique. And I'm going to try and keep it that way. That's why I'm, yeah. not, anyone, I'm not giving any phone numbers to anybody. <laughs> Well, I think that's great. Yeah, and definitely don't do that because I think you have a little corner on the market here to provide a very unique and and um, intimate feel, you know, with the locals, and which I think most people, especially people who are traveling to Peru, look for. And I don't you know, think, Bob, I want people to be coming to the villages every single day of the week. With the, you know, it's, it's kind of a sad story, but in the Inca Trail, as much as a beautiful trek, and amazing ruins and things along the way. The guys that live there, they call it Gatorade like it's a marathon run now. They're not interested in making contact with people. It's just the business. With the guys that I work with, if I go back maybe once every week or every two weeks, that's enough for me, and it's probably enough for them. They've got farming to do. They've got their own work, their own their own lifestyle to lead. So I don't want to tip the apple cart and end up going in too, too often with too many people, and then it just becomes a chore for everybody. So do you have any specific stories that you would like to share that have occurred on your, some of your, your trips? Well, ones that will scare people away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you, if you want to keep it intimate. <laughs> well, okay. So I have had, uh, not in Peru, I've had a serious accident in China. Someone fell off the Great Wall when I was doing a trek on the Great Wall of China. Wow. But, uh, did, they, did they make it? They made it, yes, but it was it was a touch. It was a tough call one. It was uh, one of these ones where it was in the middle of nowhere, and you know I've got got a first aid kit on me. I'm not I'm not a set up. I'm not a paramedic or anything, <laughs> but you know we got her onto. We, the problem was it was such a remote location, and the good thing about the treks that I'm doing, um, they're not technical hikes. So yeah, you can probably get by in cross trainer, something with good grip. It doesn't have to be like solid boots. Although I, pr- I recommend boots, and I'm never more than two or three hours away from somewhere that I can get help. So I, you know, I can get contact to someone. I can get 
get to the nearest clinic, the nearest town that has at least basic medical facilities within two or three hours. So I generally don't um, stray too far from home, although it's far enough to feel you're in the middle of nowhere, and you are, in a way. Wow. Very interesting. I'm curious, how did they actually fall? The We were doing a section of uh, China. It was in China, yeah. So it was the section of the Great Wall that not many people do. So it's a remote area. It's, it appeals to a lot of people. And some of the wall is not very well preserved. It's, you know, it's not like you, you've probably seen photos or maybe you've been there yourself. China has these turrets on either side, wall turrets. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of like Disney China. Disney Great Wall of China. A lot of the wall has been left as it was and just left, uh, you know, over the hundreds of years uh, disintegrated. So we did one of those sections of wall and basically asked, don't go any further in here, guys. It's not safe. What do people do? It's their own free will. I said, well, you know, I've told you, you do what you want, but (laughs) they continue on and one of them fell off. It hit hit some loose rock, fell off down the wall about 60 feet. Uh, fortunately, oh, wow. it wasn't a straight drop. There, there was a bit of a tumbling involved. <laughs> um, then the problem was she was actually able. She was able to communicate from where she was, where it happened. We had to get her get down to the wall, and there was a whole section of real deep, uh, dense vegetation, so we couldn't go anywhere. We had to get her back up onto the wall, down off the wall, onto a speedboat, cross a lake because it was on a peninsula, a lake, to a bus. And then on to a nearest Chinese hospital, which was another story. So oh it was funny. God. And that's kind of logistics I don't want to be involved with anymore. You know, I can, <laughs> yeah. fine. I can carry someone for two or three hours if I have to. And yeah, that's that was serious. That was a serious incident. I hope, fortunately, I haven't had anything serious happen to me at the moment. And I hope it will continue to be like that. But we're well prepared. If someone gets sick, someone can't handle it, whatever. If, if, a, a storm comes in we're prepared to get people down as quickly as we can on on decent trail that we can do okay i like it i think you provide a very i know i've already said this but very unique and very intimate tour guide i really like what you're doing um with your whole your whole company well you ask me about I, stories i can i'm not going to tell you any more stories because i save them for the treks and you know what it's not me it's the people that live in these areas that have got the best stories to tell so when we go to one of these uh, little communities and stay over in the evening and have our supper we get the guys in and they come and tell us something something about their village and that's really special you don't yeah. get that on one of these little day-by-day tours on the buses you know <laughs> No, we have to make we have made to squeeze some time. I mean, so I sent you my itinerary, and as you can see, I guess you know it's pretty jam packed. We're trying to do as much as we can in in a very short amount of time. Overall, yeah, sure. how, how did I do? How did I do uh, as far as planning, writing up an itinerary? Yeah, yeah, I went through it. Did you check what I put in in the details? I think most of it was doable, was feasible. I think you're really cutting it fine. I mean. There's other factors that could come into play that you've never thought about, like strikes. Local strikes happen quite a lot, and if they block a road, you you ain't going to match a pitch in the day, the next again day. Let's hope that doesn't happen, but it has happened already this year several times. Another thing that happens a lot is the weather, because of the the, the nature of Cusco Airport. Cusco's in a valley, in the base of a valley, and the airport, the air, the landing strip is quite a short one. So they can't get international flights into Cusco. That's why you have to connect in Lima, as you found out. So they have, you know, little seven, you know, there's no jumbo jets again to Cusco. It's 737s and smaller planes. And what they have to do is flying, flying them in and out can sometimes be tricky because not all the planes have the, is it satellite or GPS tracking? Like LAN Peru, the only one that actually can fly at night. That's oh. why there's not many other airlines flying at night. Then the main thing I was going to say there is, if there's bad weather, then all the planes are stalled. And if you've got a connecting flight to get home from Lima the same day, good luck to you. Because if there's bad weather, there's a good chance you might not make your connecting flight. All right. We fortunately do have a buffer time for, for both. Buffer's ways. good. Yeah. 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 Hopefully, Very interesting. It's, hopefully it's big enough. <laughs> well, we're going to be going in, in early April, which mm-hmm. I know is right at the tail end of the rainy season. So... Um, I'm sort of anticipating, you know, the the possibility of getting rained on at certain points on the trip. 
There's a good possibility. Let's say it won't rain every day. You'd be very unlucky if it rained every day. But then again, you'd be very lucky if it didn't rain at all. So I would go with the good attitude that it could, you know, for all weathers, go go with your rain jacket, your sun cream, your sun hat, your rain poncho. All these things will apply probably at some point in your trip. And actually, I forgot to say that Machu Picchu has its own microclimate. And what happens in Machu Picchu generally happens every day of the week. It will be rainy in the morning. You get this kind of mist hanging over Machu Picchu and people go, oh, came all the way and I don't see anything. It's just misty. And it's like, just give it a couple of hours, you know. The sun tends to come up, then it burns off or it lifts, you know, it lifts the thermals, which in turn lifts the clouds. And all of a sudden, Machu Picchu is revealed in its magical form. Normally around about 9 o'clock that happens. It could be 9, it could be 10, it could be 8.30. Did that say six days in a seven day week there might be a chance it's blue skies but that's i'm going back through many times being there something like 50 in the last 12 years i've been to machu picchu and generally that's the case scenario first thing in the morning in actual fact with the clouds hanging over it gives a kind of cool mystical value to it as well which is quite nice so if you get that in the morning and then it burns off during the later later latter half of the morning then that's great that's exactly how you want it awesome well, so in closing this out, before we sign off, what advice would you want to give somebody who, who may be interested in coming to Peru, what they should do in preparation and, and how they should plan uh, for their trip? Mm. I suppose it depends on which parts of Peru they're going to. So they would need to check their vaccinations, what, what they need to get from their local travel clinic. And I'm not allowed to give off, off that advice because I'm not, I'm, I'm not a doctor. Um, but obviously figure out where they're going, make sure they, most places in, in, the, in the Andes, you don't need uh, malarial tablets, for example. That's only if you're going to the Amazon. So yeah, definitely get your vaccinations checked out. And that takes a couple of months before you go. Obviously have insurance coverage. And if you're, if you're climbing at a def- certain height, make sure your insurance covers you for trekking. And say, say it's above 10,000 feet, make sure your policy covers that. Um, the thing, the most important thing when booking a trip for any kind of thing you do in Peru is getting the Inca Trail permits. If you really want to do that Inca Trail, that's the classic route that you walk physically into Machu Picchu from. There's no other trail that does it. That has to be booked up between four and six months in advance. So don't even buy your flights. Don't even get your international flights booked before you do that. Because if you do that and then you, you, your, your heart's set on the Inca Trail... There's no waiting list, there's no cancellation, there's no change of dates. It, it, it's Whenever you book your trek, that's it. It's not transferable. You know, there's no reimbursement or anything. That Inca Trail is booked and that's it. So that's the main thing. But the other things to consider, especially in the high season, which, as I said, is June, July and August until end in, into s- September, check local flights that you need to connect to get to Cusco from wherever it is you're going, whether it's Lima, whether it's maybe you come in from the Amazon or whatever. And also check the trains because trains and local flights do book out. And if they don't book out and they get uh, down to limited spaces, they will they will go up in price. So if you're on a limited budget and Machu Picchu doesn't come at a cheap price, you're going to have to think about getting your train tickets in advance and keeping that, getting the, the time you want and getting a good price that you want. That's that's one or two things that are really important to booking the trip. All right. Well, so, or someone could just book with Trek Hoppers Peru, right? And then just have it all figured out for them. So Yeah, of course. Aside <laughs> from the treks and aside from the homestays, as most of my treks will finish towards the, the Oyenta Tambo, where you're going to get that station that takes you to Machu Picchu, you know, they're designed that we can finish a trail at any stage. You don't have to do all of it. You can do one bit of it or two days of it or whatever. And you can then get on that train from Oyen to Tambo into Machu Picchu and get to Machu Picchu and do that to end your trip. Yeah. Awesome. I do have really one quick question, and my wife will kill me if I don't ask. Zika, is it prevalent in Peru? Is it prevalent around Machu Picchu? Good question. And it hasn't been brought up since 2016. Which was two years ago when it first started going out, and it seemed to scare a lot of people. It really did scare a lot of people. And all of the time I was working for a travel company and giving advice to other other clients, 
it was mostly from the US that were asking me about the Zika virus. So I think you guys got pretty scaremongered about it. I mean, yes. for example, on my on my side, there was nothing being told. There was nothing in the news. There wasn't big. There wasn't a big thing about the cases. There was like four or five cases in a hospital in Lima, and it was from people carrying it in from other countries like Brazil and Venezuela. The main thing you have to think about, though, for the Zika thing, the Zika, the Zika, the, the mosquito that carries it doesn't survive above 6,000 feet. And most of the Machu Picchu, the Inca Trail, all the trekking stuff that are in the mountains, that 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 insect is, can't even exist there. All right. So there you go. There we that go. That settles it. That settles it. <laughs> well, does that help? It does. Thank you. <laughs> Before we go, uh, I want to give you the opportunity to just share all of your you know, your website and where can people get a hold of you, book a trip with you, learn more about what you do and why you're doing it because it is awesome and very interesting and very unique. Well, that'd be great. Um, thanks for doing this uh, podcast with me because obviously that's given me a great uh, uh, footing into into other means of uh, advertising. But as I said, I'm happy to help anyone out. Uh, I have a website. It's called www.trekhoppers, T-R-E-K, H O P E R dot com with a plural, so it's got R S dot com on it. That's the main website. I also have uh, trekhopperspuru at gmail dot com, which you can find from the website. If you, you go onto the website, you will get that email address as well. Um, so anything, it doesn't have to be, if people are interested in trekking in homestays only, we can do that. If people want to do they're interested in just helping with getting their ticketing sorted out or they want to know when to go or even things like the how difficult some of the trekking routes are because obviously not every every route's different, is designed differently. So I've got some trekking routes that are easier and some are harder. So it might suit someone who wants to just do a three-hour trek and stay by homestay. It might suit someone who wants to do something like six or seven hours and finish by homestay. It really depends on the, the physical ability of each person. And, or, or we can combine all of it so you've got a day easier than after the day it's harder. So you can find all of that information on my website. And awesome. I also have a Facebook page. Awesome. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. That is our show for today. Um, I So I know I've said this before and I probably will say it again. I just feel so fortunate to be doing this podcast and be meeting the incredible people that we now have the opportunity to meet. Um, you know, a few a, a, a week ago, Matt and I, and the three of us were complete strangers. Well, not you and I, Elliot. We we were friends, but uh, Matt was a complete stranger. <laughs> Matt was a complete stranger to us. Now we we had this great personal conversation. We really got to know him. He had invaluable uh, not experience for the Sacred Valley and the Machu Picchu region, and I'm looking forward to a newfound friendship with him, and hopefully meeting him in the Sacred Valley in Cusco, grabbing a beer and maybe swapping some travel stories and learning more about his incredible life. Oh yeah, he's got so much more to offer. He's like, I mean, going through Egypt and the Great Wall of China, I just want to hear more about how, how that woman ended up, you know, at the bottom of the wall. Yeah, yeah. Really and we didn't even, we didn't even touch up on Egypt. On Egypt. That's, that's right. I I'm, that's a country that I'm very curious about that I really want to go see one day. So I'm going to have to, we're going to have to meet up with him. We're going to have to sit down, have a few beers, and, uh, and, and... Shoot the shit. Yes, yes. I don't care. <laughs> All right. Don't forget to reach out to us. Uh, you know, we're on Instagram and Facebook, and we still have no one on Patreon, but, you know, time, time is on our side here. Thank you, and we will talk to you next time. Bye.